to take a copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Acts. Let me turn my mic down just a hair, Cameron. Acts chapter 15 will be our text again this morning. you this morning, but I'm grateful that we have a living hope. Amen? We have a living hope. Our world is so filled with false hopes and things that don't really help. But because of the resurrection of Christ, the person of Christ and the work of Christ, we have a living hope that's real. Very grateful for that this morning. Acts 15 verses 12 through 21 will be our text again this morning. And this is part seven of really just the study that we've been doing on the Jerusalem Council. And so we're going to bite off another chunk uh, this morning. And Lord willing, I know it's going to be hard to believe. I'm glad you're all sitting down, but we'll probably finish it today. I know, shocker, but maybe not. Let's pray together. Father, we are so very grateful for your word. Where would we be without it? We would be lost. We wouldn't be able to connect the dots that nature reveals to us. We would know that there was something that was there. We would know that something made all of this or this is a hard thing to think about we would be like many in our culture and maybe swept away with secular humanism and say that you don't exist at all and deny the truth of your creation but you blessed us so much God by opening our eyes to see that creation speaks of your glory and your word tells us of our creator who you are what you're like our great need for you and how we can be reconciled to this one true holy God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're very thankful for your word. Where else could we go when our hearts are breaking? Where else could we go when our faith is weak? Where else could we go when we are in desperate need of help, Lord? Where else can we go but to your word? God, I pray today you give us a greater hunger, thirst, and desire for your word. We pray for your spirit's help also this morning. We so desperately need it. Lord, we need the help of your spirit to see truth. We need the help of your spirit to work that truth down deep into the the parts of our heart where it needs to be applied. We need your spirit's help to embrace that truth, to receive that truth. And we certainly need your spirit's help to live that truth. You are our shepherd. You knew what we needed because you were a good God. You knew we needed your spirit to lead us, guide us and direct us. And you knew that we needed your word. So, God, I pray that your spirit takes the word and ministers to our hearts as we are gathered together in person or whether we're gathered together online with our families this morning. Either way, we pray that you change our hearts, God. Help us to focus like never before on the truth of your word. 
We pray your blessings upon this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we return to Acts chapter 15 again this morning, we find ourselves really beginning to work through James's speech that he gives to his brothers and sisters that have gathered together or whoever's gathered together. We know the elders of the church had gathered uh, at the Jerusalem council. Last week, we began to unpack the counsel that he gives in regards or on the hills rather of Peter's speech. Peter had stood up, as you remember, and given testimony to the fact that God had used him to take the Gentiles, the gospel, in a variety of ways. And we saw that earlier in the book of Acts. And then when Peter is done, James, as you remember, stands up and connects a very important dot for everyone. The dot that he connects is he takes Peter's experience and he brings it underneath the word of God by opening the scripture by quoting from Amos chapter 9. And in quoting from Amos chapter 9, if you remember, one of the things that I told you last week was that he was able to tie what was happening to the Davidic covenant and to the Abrahamic covenant. That through David's line, there would come the Messiah, but not only this Messiah would come, but this Messiah would come as a king. And this king would establish his kingdom and this king will rule forever. And not only that, but both Jew and Gentile under the Messiah's rule and Messiah's reign would come to faith in Christ. And truthfully, the only way to be in the kingdom is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is no other way. And so by doing that, what James does, if you remember, is he brings every heart in the room, every person that's gathered he brings their hearts underneath the submission of the word of God as well. And I likened it to a good biblical counselor, if you remember. How a good biblical counselor will always take us to the word, always take us to God's character. And from the word and God's character, then we know how to make right applications. It's so easy to give counsel based on our opinions. It's so easy to give counsel based on worldly thought. It's really easy to take worldly thought and biblical opinion or our own opinion, rather, and interweave those together and really give counsel that's actually against God's word. It's interesting how that works. So what James does is super important in this moment where they're wrestling with, do the Gentiles need to become a Jew in order to be saved? Critical moment in the history of the church. So my aim will be to pick up where we left off last week and help us walk through the application that James gives and help us understand those four things that he references uh, in verses 19 and 20 and then make some application for us today. So if you will, look with me at verse 12. The Bible says, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this, I will return 
and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now make your way back to verse 19, if you will. So after having quoted Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, one of the things that James now does is he begins to give wise counsel. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why I exhorted and challenged you all last week to be praying for your spiritual leaders, not just your pastors, but anyone that speaks truth into your life or leads you to become more like Jesus. You should be praying for their spiritual leadership. Because one of the things that we see is that James wisely navigates and leads the church through some very tricky times, if you will. They really did need to get this right. So when you look at verse 19, notice how he begins. The first thing that I really want you to notice is he basically tells the Gentiles that we don't need to add anything to the word of God. Notice what he says again. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And that word trouble means literally we should not add anything. We should not bother them by adding to the word of God. We don't need to add specifically in this context, specifically with what we've been dealing with. We do not need to add Jewish rituals to salvation. That's what he's talking about. And notice what he says at the end of verse 19, how it's phrased there. It almost reminds me, Pastor Tom, of how Paul refers to the Thessalonian church and how they turn to God from idols to live, to live and follow the one true God. In verse 19, notice what it says. We don't need to add these rituals that we've been discussing. We don't need to add these to the Gentiles. They don't need to become a Jew in order to be saved. They don't have to keep the law like that in order to be saved because they've already turned to God. And this is a, a phrase or letting us know this talking about genuine repentance. Biblical repentance is turning from God, excuse me, turning from sin and turning to God. It's turning from self rule and turning to God's rule. It's turning from your own rule and turning to God's rule. It's, it's moving from being your own boss to making God your boss. And so James clearly is helping everyone understand these Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. And we don't need to add anything. We don't need to trouble them with extra rules that they need to keep. Calvin said this about this part of the verse. He was saying, or excuse me, he said James is talking about, we do not need to trouble by prescribing certain rites. The ESV study Bible says, don't trouble the Gentiles to keep ritual laws. 
So the natural question is, if they've already turned to faith in Christ, why would James need to write this? Well, he's circling back and he's kind of connecting the dot that Jesus has already fulfilled the law. They don't need to do what Jesus has already fulfilled. They can't add to Christ's redemptive work. They can't add to his person. Instead, they need to embrace and accept and receive what Christ has done on their behalf. Now, I want us to think about this. I want us to think about salvation. And I want you to think about where you're at with Christ this morning. Because I think it's a good place for us to think about where we're at with the Lord. In verse 19, we don't need to add anything, but we do need to turn to God. So I wonder this morning, whether you're listening online or whether you're sitting here in person, if you've truly repented of your sins and embraced Christ as your Savior. Spurgeon once said that tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is the Lord's day. What did he mean by that? Well, what he meant by that is often when someone hears the gospel call to come to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the first things they think about is, I'll do it tomorrow. And the enemy tries to get us to put that off and delay that decision, to delay the answering of that call. But if the Spirit of God is calling you and the Spirit of God is drawing you, then I would exert, exhort you and encourage you to respond to Christ today. My goodness, if we've seen anything lately in the life of our church family, surely we've seen the uncertainty of life, have we not? Life is precious. Life is fragile. Our health may not always be here, regardless of the age, whether young or whether old. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed the next five minutes. None of us are guaranteed this afternoon. And we're certainly not guaranteed Tomorrow, So I think one of the things that James helps us see is the need to come to faith in Christ. Whether you're a boy, whether you're a girl or a teenager or an adult, come to Christ today. Second, now look with me at verse 20. This is what you probably have all been waiting for. This is the place in the Bible that you probably have read. And you're like, I don't know what that's talking about. And if you're like me, you read over those places very quickly and pray, Lord, next time, maybe I'll understand that better. Right. Hopefully we can understand that better together this morning. Notice what James says. So instead of troubling them to add all these things to their faith that aren't necessary, what we should do brothers is we should write to them to do four things one abstain from the things polluted by idols two to abstain from sexual immorality three to abstain from what has been strangled and four to abstain from blood now what does he mean by that and what is he talking about let's start first with probably what we all understand we'll start i guess with the easiest one first, which is to abstain from sexual immorality. One of the things that was true about the Roman culture, as you know, unfortunately, American culture is following right along, is Roman culture was very, very wicked and very, very evil. And when it came to 
perversion, they were very, very immoral sexually as well. <clears throat> so Paul, writing to these Gentile Christians coming from the Roman culture, simply draws off of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. He's drawing off of the Ten Commandments. Do you know what that commandment is? Thou shalt not commit adultery. And he's making an application based off that command to his hearers, to his audience. James is saying we need to write to these Gentile believers to control themselves sexually, to not do whatever they want with their bodies, to not be with whoever they want with their bodies or their minds or their hearts, that they need to guard themselves and be pure both inside and outside. And we probably could think just for a minute, probably would be worth it, that when we act in ways outwardly that are immoral, it always starts where? First, in our hearts. So this was a very pagan culture. This was a very immoral culture. I mean, my goodness, have you ever studied about the Greek goddess Aphrodite? If you have, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, for the Greeks, it was tied to their religion. How about that? That's how immoral they were. But that's where they were. Brothers and sisters, let's not judge them. Let us remember when you're saved, where do you come from? The world. How do you think? Like the world. How do you behave? Like the world. How do we need to be changed? To be more like Jesus. We need to be told certain things. We just do. The same was true for these Christians in that time. And so James is saying, live in a way that's honoring to the Lord. Now, he also says to abstain from things that have been strangled and to abstain from blood. And we're going to tackle these two together because they really are intertwined. And I want you to go back with me in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. You find your way to verse 17. And as we look at a sequence of verses from different chapters in Leviticus, one of the truths of studying the Bible is going to become very clear, which is greater light or greater understanding comes as we study the scripture, it unfolds. And so we're gonna see that. Leviticus 3.17 begin, or gets us on that process. It's a good beginning, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor what? Nor blood. And so one of the things that God had told the Jews is there are a couple of things you can do. and There are a couple of things you can't do. Kind of sounds like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? There's some things you can do and there's some things that you can't do. And so one of the things dietarily that they could not do is they, they couldn't consume, according to this verse, as it applies to Acts 15, they couldn't consume blood. Now, let's go to chapter seven. Same book, Leviticus chapter seven. And find your way to verses 26 and 27. 
Verse 26, moreover, you shall eat no blood. We just learned that. Whatever, whether of fowl or of animal in any of your dwelling places. Now we're going to see the significance of this command. Look at verse 27. For whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. It's a pretty significant thing. Not only was it off limits, not only could they not do it, but the Lord said, if you do, you're, you're cut off from the people. Let's go to chapter 17. Because the question should be surfacing in your mind as good Bible students, which is the question that every toddler begins to ask when they're around the age of three, I guess. Why? Thank you, Miss Kathy. You're not a toddler, but you knew where I was going, didn't you? <laughs> you know a lot of toddlers. You've raised a lot of toddlers, haven't you? Yeah, the question, why? Well, why? We've got it, right? Okay, I can't eat that. And if I eat that, there's some pretty significant consequences for that. But, but the question is, well, well, why? So I want you to look at verses 10 through 12. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who so sojourn among them eats any, uh, eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Wow, sounds very familiar to what we read in chapter 7. Now here's the beginning of the answer to the question why. Look at verse 11. First of all, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So every life is what? Sacred. Every life is sacred. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But every life is sacred. Human life, I think we as Christians understand, is sacred. But I don't know if you've ever thought much about the reality that even animal life is sacred. We need to be careful with the way that we treat the stuff in the world. It's interesting. But the life of the flesh is in the blood. We do know that if someone had to... Uh, was cut, let's say, in a certain artery that they would bleed out quickly because the life of the flesh is in, in our blood. Now let's keep going. And I have given it to you. Now here's the other dot we need to connect. So every life is sacred, both animals and humans. But at the same time, notice we're talking about sacrifices here. And I have given it for you on the altar to make what? To make atonement. So the blood was precious. And the blood was sacred. And the blood mattered. Because ultimately it pointed us to whose blood that would be spilt for us. Christ's blood. He would pour out his life's blood for his people. And all these sacrifices pointed to it. And God is training these Israelites to understand that there's something important about the animal that's substituting its life for you in the Old Testament. Because there's going to be another that come that substitute his life for you. His life will be different. It's the life that you really need. And his blood will be different because it's the blood that truly will atone for your sins now and forevermore. And so God, in helping them understand all this, said... It's off limits for you to eat and consume because it's sacred, because it's going to be used for sacrifice. It's going to be used to cover your sin. Verse 12, therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, 
No person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Now, I know you're probably wondering, okay, I get that part of eating food with blood in it. But what about the strangulation of animals? What is that about? Well, if you strangle an animal to death, what's still inside of that animal? Blood. Blood. So one of the things that James is doing here is he's helping them see you need to stay away from this. And this has been rooted in the scriptures. And I'm going to add more to this in just a minute. So hang tight because you're probably thinking another question, which is, but they weren't Jewish. So how does this apply to them? So now that you have your why, if you're thinking the other question, hold on to the other question because we're going to come back to that. Now, the next thing, go back to Acts 15, that they were to abstain from was food that was offered to idols. This is a strange thing for our, from our culture because we don't often see this. Not that our culture doesn't lack idols. My goodness, our culture is filled with idolatry. It just looks different. But if you've ever been anywhere where people are actually offering food to an idol as a sacrifice in worship, then you know exactly what was going on in this context. And so Paul is encouraging these Gentiles to stay away from that, to not eat that, uh, but instead to leave that there. So what do we do with all these things? Right? If we said that Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law and he's fulfilled the civil law and we don't need to add anything else to the law, then what do we do with all of this? Like, why is James telling these Gentiles to be mindful of what they're eating, whether it's been sacrificed to idols or whether it's been filled with blood. Why would he do that? Well, the answer is very, very simple. You ready? It's out of neighbor love. It's out of neighbor love. Really, what we see surface for us is what we call the principle of accommodation. That's what's surfacing here in our text. So he wasn't picking and choosing parts of the law to keep, but he was applying principles from the law so that the Gentiles would learn to not live for themselves only, but to live for the spiritual good of someone else. James is strengthening the church. He's not weakening the church. He's strengthening the church. He's protecting the church. Think about how we got here. We got here by tensions between two different ethnicities that had come to faith in Christ and they couldn't find agreement. And the agreement was so sharp and so distinct and so heated. They had to go all heated. They had to go all the way back to Jerusalem to find someone to help them resolve their conflict. And in this moment, if James doesn't get this right and the other elders don't get this right, then that conflict continues and division begins to creep into the life of the church. But because they answer this the right way, salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And Gentiles, though you are freed from the law, it matters how you live. So carry yourself in a way that you're not hurting nor harming 
anyone else's walk with Christ. Don't put a stumbling block among or in front of other people, I mean. He's strengthening the church. He's actually uniting Jew and Gentile. The Jews needed to die to themselves and understand the law the right way. And the Gentiles also needed to think of the Jews. It worked both ways. By the way, in the local church, does it not work that way as well? Do we not need to think of one another? Do we not need to be sensitive to one another? Do we just use our freedom any old way that we want to use it and do whatever we think or whatever we say? Do we not just give thought? Should we not rather give thought to our actions and our words and our attitudes and how we carry ourselves and how we make decisions? We should. It matters how we use our freedom. It matters how we walk with the Lord. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times for Christians, they just say, that's who I am. Just deal with it. Or I'm just going to say whatever I think. And they don't really think or don't really consider, you know, there might be a better way. Because what you're going to do might just hurt someone else's walk with Christ. And so to understand this, we need to understand the difference between two things. There is a distinct difference between accommodation and compromise. There is a distinct difference between being a God pleaser and a man pleaser. Accommodation falls under the category of being a God pleaser. Loving God and loving others. Whereas compromise falls under the category of being a man pleaser and loving self. So let's think about that for just a minute. Because what I would suggest that James is doing is following the principle of accommodation. He's trying to disciple the Gentiles. To consider the needs of your Jewish brothers greater than yourself. Is it really that big of a deal that you don't eat food sacrificed to idols? No. Is it really that big of a deal that you don't eat food that's got blood in it? Well, no. Is it really that big of a deal that you don't eat food that comes from a source where that animal has been strangled? Well, no. And obviously, we need to be pure and holy on the inside and the outside. You see what I'm saying? So what's the difference between these two? Here's what James is getting at. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you my definition of accommodation. Accommodation is really the willingness to do or to not do something for the good of someone else. It's the willingness to do or not do something for the good of someone else. And as we've seen clearly in the text in verse 20, that's exactly what James is calling them to do. To live for the spiritual good of someone else. James is calling the Gentiles to live for the good of the Jews, to lay down their rights. Boy, is that ever something, Emilio, that we need to hear in our culture today? My goodness, you want to get somebody's hair to stand up on the back of their neck. You just talk about their rights. Right? It's my right. I can say whatever I want. It's my right. I can live however I want. It's my right, my body, my choice. No, no, it doesn't really work that way. And so James is calling them to lay down their rights 
for the good of others. Pastor Jim read Paul's example. What an exemplary example of the call to worship. Pastor Jim read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Where Paul is saying, I wanted to become like a Jew to reach Jews. I wanted to become like a Gentile in order to reach Gentiles. What was he saying? Was Paul schizophrenic? No. You have a mental disorder? No. Was he trying to compromise? Absolutely not. He was saying, I'm living my life in a way where I'm sensitive to the needs of others so that I put no offense before them, no matter the situation that that I'm in, so that they can hear the gospel about Jesus Christ. It's important. In fact, if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 9, we won't go there this morning, but you can look at 1 Corinthians 9. Boy, the Corinthians really read the whole book of Corinthians. And one of the things that you'll notice is that the Corinthians were not using the freedom that they had in Christ well. They were divisive. They quarreled. They had favorite preachers. They said, well, I like Paul better. I like Apollos better. I like this person better. And they were fractured. They were divided. They were not unified. They were really, really a mess. And one of the things that they were really struggling with that Paul is trying to help them is with how to use their freedom and not put a stumbling block in front of other people. And so in chapter 9, Paul says to them specifically, you know, the Bible does teach that the person who makes their, or the person that labors in gospel ministry should get their living from that gospel ministry. So he's referencing that in 1 Corinthians 9. But here's what he says in verse 12. We have chosen not to make use of that right. Why? He goes on to say, my word's not his, I'm paraphrasing. So that we don't put anything before you, we want you to understand the importance of the gospel that we were willing to die to ourselves, die to our rights, so that you could hear the gospel and others could hear the gospel. We didn't want you to think that we were doing it for the money. And so in order for you not to think we were doing it for the money, because you're already unhealthy, you're already suspicious, you're already divided, you already have this person, this person, and this person, you already have groups and factions. We wanted to prove to you, we wanted to put our money where our mouth is, that it is not about money while we're here. And we're here for the gospel. You can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You can look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. They both talk about the same thing, using the freedom of Christ in a way that honors and is good for others. So when we follow the principle of accommodation and when we are applying this principle that we're not using our freedom in a way that harms others, but helps others. You know what the motive is there? Love. To love. To love. You know, I think as a Christian, one of the marks of maturity and one of the marks of growth is love. Loving one another deeper and stronger and just thinking through at least. If I do this, how will it help or hinder someone else walk with Christ? That's not compromise. That's not being a man pleaser. That's actually being a God pleaser and loving God and loving others. You know what the result is? And we'll see this more the next time in chapter 15. When we live that way and we live for the spiritual good of someone else and it's not all about us, the church is built up 
and the church is strengthened. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum is compromise. Again, don't mix up compromise and accommodation. They're two different things. What is compromise? Here's my definition. So if you Google it real quick, you're not going to find this definition on Google, I promise, because this came from me. So you can critique it and correct me if I get some of these things off or something I should have added. I would say that compromise is the changing of one's actions, beliefs, or convictions. Hear me. For the purpose of avoiding a situation, avoiding a consequence, or avoiding persecution. It's two different things. That's two different things. Compromise is when I change my beliefs, my convictions, or my actions, because your actions flow from your convictions and your beliefs, in order to avoid something adverse to myself. And boy, are we seeing that all around us. There is churches and pastors capitulating and bowing down to the culture and compromising their beliefs and convictions. And young people, one of the great struggles that you're going to have as you grow up and you enter into adulthood and enter out, enter into the world out of your parents' guardianship and, and their raising of you in their homes is you're going to be tempted to compromise. Because you may have a job one day where your boss asks you to lie for them. You may have a job. You may have a job one day where you have to assent or agree with a lifestyle that doesn't honor the Lord in order to keep your job. It's where we're headed. Culture's heading there very quickly. And you're going to have to make the decision that no matter what, I'm going to be a Daniel, just like in Babylon, I'm going to choose to honor God and not compromise. Leave all the results to the Lord. Now, what's the motive of compromise? Selfishness and self-preservation really is the love of self. Because you don't want to have a bad consequence. You don't want to go through persecution. You don't. As I mentioned, maybe you want to lose your job. So you compromise. There's a crazy story in the Bible. If you went to Galatians chapter 2, of probably one of the most unlikely people in all of the Bible compromising. Because it was after he had denied Christ. And it was after he had been restored by Christ. It was after really what we just read in Acts. Where he's used by the Lord to reach the Gentiles. You know who I'm talking about? Peter. In Galatians chapter 2. The Bible says that Peter fell into hypocrisy. Because he was hanging out with the Gentiles. One minute. And then when influential leaders from Jerusalem came. He quit hanging out with. The Jews, the next, or excuse me, the Gentiles, the next minute. And Paul says that he held Peter accountable for that. And now here's the interesting reality. Here's what compromise does, because it never affects just one person. Because if you read that story in Galatians 2, do you know who was swept up in Peter's compromise? Another unlikely person. You never would guess it unless you've read it and you know. 
Like if I put a thousand dollars on the line and you'd never read it and you didn't know, I don't know that you would guess it. It was Barnabas. Say it's not so. Not you, Barnabas. Yeah, it was Barnabas. The very man that went to Paul's defense. The very man that, that helped Paul on his missionary journeys. Especially the first one. Right? He got swept up in Peter's hypocrisy and Peter's compromise. That's how it works. You never sin in a vacuum. And compromise doesn't affect just one person. You want to destroy your family? Compromise. You want to destroy your church? Compromise. You want to destroy the community? Compromise. You want to destroy the nation? Compromise. My goodness, look at America. What have we done? Compromise after compromise after compromise. What have we done in our community? Compromise after compromise after compromise. Be careful. What's the result? It tears things down. It doesn't build things up. So what James does here is he provides for us a model of what it looks like in verses in verse 20 to not compromise, but practice accommodation. Let me say the same thing differently because it needs to be said this way. James is calling the Gentiles to live in a way that doesn't bind the conscience of the Jews. That's what he's doing. He's calling them to live in such a way that it doesn't bind their conscience. And he's calling the Jews to live in such a way that it doesn't bind the conscience of the Gentiles. Boy, that's important. I could have said all that in that two sentences about 10 minutes ago, couldn't I? Think about that. Do you live in a way where you're binding the conscience of your fellow brother or sister? And do you live in a way that you're binding a conscience, even of maybe an unbeliever? It's worth considering. Now, a couple of things I want you to think about in application to this. A healthy church and a healthy Christian does two things. Number one, grows in their knowledge of the word. James was able to navigate through all these challenges because he knew the word and helped the church know the word. And then number two, this was the same guy who wrote a very familiar verse. Don't be a hearer of the word only, but also be a doer. So we need to not only grow in our knowledge of the word, but we need to grow in our application of the word. A healthy church does both. A healthy church does both. Now, I want you to notice what he does in verse 21. And we're going to land the plane. So he tells them these four things that they need to do. And then in verse 21, notice what he says next. And it may not make any sense at first, so we need to think about it. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You know what he's arguing for, Pastor Jim? The sufficiency of scripture. We don't have to add anything to the gospel. We don't have to add anything to God's word. God has spoken. In fact, Jesus gave a parable almost in the same lines of what James is talking about here. Did he not? In the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember the rich man? Oh Lord, Father Abraham. Just send somebody back to tell my family. 
And then they'll believe. You remember how Jesus finished that parable? They have Moses. I.e. they have the scripture. Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful picture the Jerusalem Council paints for us of your people landing on the sufficiency of scripture. That when we look to the word, it tells us what you require of us and how we can be saved and made right with you. And when we look to your word, it tells us how to apply principles where we can live for the good of one another and die to ourselves. Father, help us to grow and help us to mature. It doesn't always have to be our way. Help us to discern the the times where we do need to stand firm on a conviction. And then maybe those times where something's a third level issue and it's really just not that big of a deal. It takes wisdom from you, God. We need to be walking with you in order to know the difference between those two. We need to be seeking counsel from one another. There's just so many principles here. I pray, God, for our church this morning that will be strengthened in the gospel and strengthened in your word. And I also pray, God, this morning that you'll help us individually be strengthened in the word and strengthened in the gospel. We thank you for the scripture again, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet as we close by worshiping the Lord through a song.